So congratulations. <laughs> every day, every day, congratulations. <laughs> this blessed life. Mary Jane Block, she says, everything takes longer, longer than you think it should or thought it would, except your life. Faith Baldwin, she says, time is a dressmaker. Time is a dressmaker, and it specializes in alterations. Hmm. This is from, I don't even think I can pronounce it, Igjugarukjok, <laughs> who, I don't know where I came across this, but it's a shaman from a caribou Eskimo tribe, way up in the north. And the statement is, the true wisdom lies far from humankind. It's out of the loneliness and suffering that it can be reached. Privation and suffering alone opens the mind to all that is hidden to others. It's kind of wonderful, like the, the, the shaman from the Caribou Eskimo tribe, about his insights into life. So in this practice, it's um, like gardeners, and we're tending to the garden. And there's a lot of conditions that are there for the ripening of things. Yet we never quite know when the sprout will germinate, but certain conditions are very supportive to that sprouting. certain conditions that we're developing here as far as living with integrity, with these five precepts and trainings, really under the category of ahimsa. This, it's such a beautiful word, word the, the life of living a life of non-harming. It's a very important ingredient that supports insight as well as the steadying of the mind and the heart through our practice. And these are supportive conditions for insight to arise. But we never know. Can't make it happen, but we can support it. And sometimes there's even a story where you finally just let go, it all happens. And probably a number of you know the story of Ananda who is the Buddha's attendant, and he had actually memorized every single one of the teachings of the Buddha. That's why when you read the canonical literature, it always begins with the first lines, thus have I heard. That's Ananda. And it's amazing to think like that he had memorized all these teachings, and it turns out that in the late um, 1900s, couple of Burmese monks decided to take it on, to memorize the whole Tipitaka, the three baskets of the Buddha, and evidently those two did. And a friend of mine who's a monk in Burma, a Westerner, he met one of them and asked him, well, how, how long does it take for you to recite? 
He said it takes um, a month and a half, and I recite for eight hours a day. So we talk about like a marathon, an Olympic marathon of the mind. But in Burma, when I was there, I know many of the monks knew so they knew so much by memory. That was their way of learning was the repetition and the memory. But so it goes that the Buddha died, and Ananda was going to meet with. Um, 499 or 500 fully enlightened arahants. It was the night before, and he still hadn't made it, and felt some pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Sit and walk and sit and walk, and, and the doors of heaven didn't open. And it's said that he finally um, got on his bed and decided to say, oh, well, and Somewhere between um, moving his head down and hitting the pillow, he awakened. It's this beautiful story. Like the conditions were there, but we don't know when things ripen. That's kind of a famous story in the suttas of this letting go, if you will. There's a poem by uh, Juan Ramon Jimenez called The Ocean. And it says, I have a feeling that My boat has struck something down there in the depths against a great thing. But nothing happens. Nothing. Just the silence. Just the waves. Nothing happens or has everything happened. And now we stand in the new life, the new light. Nothing happens or has everything happened. So we're listening and feeling, allowing, recognizing, experiencing ourselves, our hearts, our bodies, thoughts, emotions. And so, yeah, deep bows for the noble work. To me, this is some of the most noblest of works that one can do, and at times some of the most difficult of works, because we are entering into this hall of mirrors. That's what I think a meditation retreat is, starring me, myself, and I. Ay, ay, ay. And it is incredibly noble to be taking this time to purify our hearts. You know, sometimes people say, well, this is very selfish, and yet, you know, the Buddha went and did this, and we're still talking about what happened nearly 2,600 years ago and the impact of these teachings of ahimsa, of non-harming, that have um, so much been a blessing to our civilization. So tonight I want to... um, tonight, today. (laughs) Um, I want to speak about a a, a fairly controversial um, or misunderstood subject in the teachings of the Dharma, which is in Pali, anatta, or no self, or uh, the ownerless nature. There's a lot of different uh, names for that, but um, no self. And this comes from the second discourse of the Buddha 
called the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the teachings of the, the signs or marks of, of non-self, but it also includes uh, the, what's known as the three marks or characteristics of existence, namely uh, the char- characteristic of dissatisfactoriness, the impermanence, and the selfless nature of things. You know, it's very interesting when the Buddha offered that uh, teaching, he offered it to the, the five ascetics that he'd been practicing with in self-mortification. And it said that the very first one who got fully enlightened was um, the ascetic Kodanya. And just to tie a loop, Kodanya was, was the youngest of these holy people that came and saw the signs of the baby when when he was when Siddhartha Gautama was born and these astrologers and wise people came to look at the signs and four all of them said he'll become a Buddha but Kodanya said no he'll become a Buddha and so many years later 30 plus years later he was now an ascetic and practicing self-mortification and he is the first one to get enlightened and actually in those days um you know, the Buddha just said, Ehi Bhikkhu, you're a monk, and that was the ordination. So these three marks of existence are one of the cardinal teachings within the Dharma, along with the four foundations of mindfulness and the four ennobling truths. You could say that the four foundations are the applications to the awakenings of these four noble truths and marks of existence. But this teaching of non-self or the selfless or the ownerless nature of things is very provocative. It's at times mystified, misunderstood. No self? What are you talking about? I look in the mirror and who am I seeing? If I'm not myself, who am I? And of course, in our Western civilization, Descartes declares... I think, therefore, I am one of the hallmarks of Western philosophical. I think, therefore, I am. But we have to ask ourselves from the Dharmic point of view, where is this I? There's a practice called the 32 parts of the body meditation where we bring awareness into these parts. And where is this self to be found? Is it in the head here, the body here? the nails, the teeth, the skin. Of course, we begin to go inside the body to all these various organs and liquids and solids. Where is this self to be found? I'd like to offer you a few little factoids. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. The body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces new head hair every two to five years, except for maybe mine. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows a new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to me read this sentence. 
Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So, in other words, at any given moment, the parts of your body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So, if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as yesterday. And in The Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius, I, I won't um, read this whole thing, but they, evidently this has been a question with neuroscientists and neuropsychologists. They actually cannot identify in the brain where there is this entity called self. They describe it as, from a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. This apparent solid I is actually built upon many subsystems and many sub-subsystems. So it goes on. But they speak of it as that it's really a fabrication. But I love what Daniel Siegel says. It says the self is actually a plural verb, not a singular noun. I like that. The self is a plural verb, not a singular noun. This is a fairly radical teaching. And it may rub up against, what do you mean, the self? It rubs up against our status, our roles, our culture, our ethnicity, and perhaps you could say it's just downright un-American. <laughs> it's mysterious. But the Buddha reasoned in the Anatta Lakana Sutta that if there was a self, it's a pretty interesting argument. If there was a self, the self could say, don't get sick, don't get old, don't die. I could tell my hair, don't fall out. I could tell my prostate gland, which is enlarged, which is now causing some urination uh, blockages. I mean, able to get it out through some medication. But I didn't actually send a text or an email to my prostate gland to get bigger. It's just doing what it does. If you're a man, it's likely that the prostate gets larger. There's not control here. There's not control. Who am I? So in Alice in Wonderland, the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other for some time in silence, and at last the caterpillar took the hookah, the pipe, out of his mouth and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for conversation. And Alice replied rather shyly, I, I, I hardly know, sir. And just at present, at least, I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, said Alice, because I'm not myself, you see. I like Alice. <laughs> so this practice has a sense of, um, as actually as a psychiatrist friend once wrote to me, Bob, this practice is very disabusive. We were working on the 32 parts of the body. And to be honest, 
I didn't know what disabusive meant, and I got kind of scared. Am I abusing my psychiatrist friend? I had to go look it up in the dictionary. And disabusive is a very interesting word because it, it means it's like, a, it's like what you believe to be reality or consciousness all of a sudden gets flipped upside down. And it's like there's, there's not much bearings. It's not solid. It's kind of reorient, it's a reorienting dilemma. And in some ways we could say that this practice has that aspect of kind of turning things upside down. Who am I without my story? It's a big one. One of the most liberating and scary questions sometimes to ask ourselves. One of the ways that I really understand or like as an understanding about anatta or the ownerless nature of things is that there's some references that at, at times are given to the Buddha, of course, the all-enlightened one, the thus-gone one, but also there's a reference of the unconditioned one. And I particularly like that in the sense that what's that implying is that if there was an experience of the unconditioned, then there must be experience of the conditioned. And when we look at it from like a psychological framework, the conditioning is our story, is our narrative, is how we see the world. The Buddha discovered that the story, the narrative, was limited, fueled by ignorance, by greed and hatred. Just like the other day when I was speaking about it, if we continue to have this belief that somehow our place home a place of refuge is to be found through sensual delights or the craving to be someone, the craving to feel nothing. We can search from one end of the world to the other and uh, we may not discover that place of home and that perhaps this home is inside us, in our hearts, the Buddha nature, the possibility of awakening. And to me, I think that what the Buddha discovered was he broke through all of this conditioning fueled by greed and hatred and, of course, the underlying ignorance breaking through all of these aspects. It's very powerful what the Buddha wrote about his awakening. It's like sometimes known as the lion's roar. He says, Through many a birth I've wandered in samsara, seeking, not, seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again. O house hilder, Builder thou art seen, thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken, the ridge pole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving and ignorance. I just gets goosebumps just reading that. This the lion's roar of awakening, breaking free of all these conditions. Acham Buddhadasa says, Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. To understand this is to heal all illness and sorrow. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives with an open, free heart, 
that does not cling to anything. This is the peace of nirvana. It's always here, available whenever we let go. So this practice is a very amazing practice. And I've really come to believe, and it may sound paradoxical, that it's an incredibly personal practice. It's an incredibly profoundly impersonal practice. They're both there. That this story, this narrative, is what we get to work with and live with in our lives. How could we not? We've been brought up. We've developed into our personality. And fortunately enough, we've individuated enough to see that we've individuated. (laughs) And now perhaps the rest of life is untangling the tangle of that individuation. Who is this story that I call Bob, the Bob Show? It's filled with its shame and sadness and anger, this wanting to be someone, wanting to feel good, not wanting to feel anything. Who is this Bob guy? This narrative and this story, this is what we get to work with. We cannot bypass this personality. Well, I'll just go to the impersonal, just impersonal. Not so easy. We call that the spiritual bypassing. This narrative, this story, our life, is what we get to work with, to awaken. There's a lot of stories going around in our heads and in our lives. And of course, some of these stories are incredibly self-defeating. Tara Brock calls it the trance of unworthiness. But these stories that make up our lives are very, very powerful. I was mentioning the, in the other talk about, um, you know, we're born in kind of like these sovereign Buddha Nate. I mean, we're awake. We, we don't have a lot of inhibitions. We are fully ourselves in infancy and gradually we along the ways get wounded and shamed and hopefully fostered our sense of self-worth which is so important and of course if we don't get it then we begin to look elsewhere for it but the power of our upbringing is huge is this is what we bring into our lives there's a friend of mine he um his mother had taken her life, this big, huge situation in his life as a boy. This happened when he was like 11 years old. His father was a retired submarine commander, didn't have a lot of emotional intelligence. Not that all submarine commanders don't have emotional intelligence, but this particular man didn't. But of course, he's there with four boys and a wife that took her life and trying to do the best that he could do. And they lived in kind of a smaller place, and my f- friend was very tall and a little bit clumsy growing up, and so he, the dad gave him a nickname. 
Now, you probably have all heard of the story of, in the children's story of King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. Well, his name was King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. That's a pretty powerful name to be called. And you can imagine if you kept on hearing this, you begin to potentially believe this is who I am. Many of us have stories that have taken away our, our sovereignty in our lives. My parents used to say to me, it's a good thing you got your brother. He'll be a businessman and make some money. You, you probably won't. And well, they were actually probably pretty right. <laughs> Just a meditator that happens to teach. But, you know, I'm doing okay. I don't need any. I'm doing all right. But like those stories can be very, or, you know, you can't sing. You, you know, you're smart, but you're not pretty. You're a good athlete, but, you know, can't draw. Remember once in a mindful space stress reduction class, we were going around the circle. People were sharing a little bit about some discoveries they had during the week, and one woman said, you know, I all of a sudden became aware that I do not remember one day in my entire adult life that I didn't call myself an asshole. And another person said, well, I don't call myself that, but I call myself a dummy. And another person said, well, I don't say that, but I call myself stupid. Or I call myself ugly. It, like, was going around the room. And it's like, oh, my goodness, what we say to ourselves. And often, of course, the things that we say to ourselves, we wouldn't say to another because we wouldn't have any friends. If I treated others the way that I treat myself at times, I wouldn't have any friends. Sometimes things are just said to us that can be very wounding. I remember like being a young boy too, and um, I, I, I like peanuts. And my grandma, she knew I liked peanuts. And so they'd be on like little tables, the little things of peanuts, and, and I'd go and get some peanuts. You have to use your hand and you, you gather some peanuts. Well, my uncle, he, he kind of caught this was funny. He would always say, here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. I don't got a claw. I got fingers. And, but like the message was, it was shaming. It made me feel shy. Like, oh, Uncle Sidney's going to, it kind of hurt my feelings. Because I'm just young. I don't know any better. So even inadvertently at times, maybe he didn't know that was shaming. But in time, you know, we, we develop our personality, our life. I mean, how could we not? This is what we get to work with when we sit here on the, on the cushion. Our life comes up. Profoundly personal practice. And then impersonal. Here falls out, prostate gets bigger, other things happen. I mean, it's just going on. All these conditions, all these conditions of our story, our life, things that have happened to us that develop our sense of identity. And we're coming up against our stories as we sit here. And we're learning to recognize, to allow, to feel, experience how the different states of mind coming and going, pointing to more of the impersonal aspect and so forth. These stories that we tell ourselves can enslave us. They, I've been enslaved by them. 
my own sense of my own constrictions and contractions and shame and inadequacy. They enslave us. To me, this is what the Buddha discovered breaking through these stories of enslavement to awakening. It's important for us to know that they, perhaps they are limited definitions, that there's more to me than just that story. And, you know, happy to say with my friend that was told, King Minus, everything you touch breaks, that not only, you know, he became successful as a business person, but much more importantly, he became successful in knowing his o- above his own self-worth, because that was taken away. It's only through awareness, through mindfulness, that we can begin to make some changes. Once we can begin to see the story, see the conditions, we can begin to work with them. On one hand, we're unaware and we're just spinning along in the reactive cycles of of unawareness. But once we become awake, we are here, we can respond and know, oh, here's this old story I'm telling myself, and see that it's not holding um, as tight as it once was. So, Margaret Wheatley, uh, this is a very um, beautiful um, thing that she writes. She, she says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal, we can notice something new. So when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we have a chance of changing. This is, in some ways, part of what we're doing here. We're seeing the self-referencing network again and again and again. It's an old story. It's an old story. It's a painful story. And I'm not saying story to negate the pain of what's there. How could it be any different because this is what's happened in our lives? But I think the Dharma is offering to me the liberating quality that we can begin to recognize these stories and begin to become less enslaved by them. This to me is one of the most deepest liberating qualities of these teachings that we can begin to become less enslaved. This is why I love the Dharma so much. He even breaks through the stories of the Bob Show. It's an old rerun. So again, it's just important to say that we can't bypass these stories. It's our practice to embrace, to acknowledge, to also see they come and go. And perhaps in time we begin to grow wiser. 
It's a formidable uh, practice that's ahead of us here, that, with, that we are within. Dorothy Hunt, she writes in The Tendrils of the Mind that no matter how many words arise in your mind or how many places it muses, its musings travel, no matter how many thoughts or opinions it clings to or how many attachments to how many stories, no matter how many shoots called projections or memories, or how many judgments it imagines are true, there is one single tendril wound around all the others, and this must be unwound if you want to be free. The last one to drop is the one you most cherish, the one that insists its productions are real, the tendril that causes all suffering, the one that holds tightly to a thought called me. This is the great journey of the heart to heal, to grow in wisdom, to grow in compassion. This is the big work ahead of us. Carl Jung, he writes, I can feed the hungry. I can forgive an insult. I can love my enemies. And that these are great virtues. But what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars, the most impudent of the offenders, are all within me? And that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness. And that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What if I should discover that I am the poorest of the beggars, the most impudent of the offenders, and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved? What then? And so I know it's kind of paradoxical here that on one hand, I'm, I'm getting very personal, talking about the, the personal things in our lives that we cannot negate. And at the same time, this impersonal aspect that begins to help us to break free of these stories. So they're both there. And so I just want to support the encouragement of that of that side to, to, to mend our hearts. I have a, a secret wish. One of my goals in life. And um, it was inspired by my, um, my mother-in-law, Sherm. Sherm was... Um, Beautiful, simple uh, woman, a lot of love. She was not uh, involved in meditation practice and hardly went to the church. Lived just a virtuous and kind life. And I watched as she 
uh, got sick and eventually died, that my, my deep belief was that she died with no resentment in her heart. And she had a lot to be resentful for, a husband that left her, cheated on her. She had difficulties in life. And towards the end, she even was like, how's Ernie doing? Is he okay? This is her ex-husband, wishing wellness. And it just, um, so one of my aspirations is to die with no resentment. And I got a, I got a good ways to go have a clean slate. But I realized that, you know, living with the hardened heart is very painful. Don Miguel Ruiz says that we must forgive those we feel that have wronged us, not because they deserve to be forgiven, but because we love ourselves so much we don't want to keep on paying for the injustice. The making of reconciliation is so important part of our practice. So whatever word you like, reconciliation, forgiveness, making amends, making peace. This is a beautiful work ahead of us and I often like to reflect on three different qualities that help to foster that process of making peace, making amends, or reconciliation. The first aspect is, is, is the reconciliation to ourselves. How much self-talk and self-loathing is there? The times that we've been hard and hurtful on ourselves, judgmental and critical. So the first aspect of the practice and reconciliation is, is to reconcile with oneself that these stories that I've told myself of my own deficiency, inadequacy, shame, unworthiness. As I look back in hindsight, wisdom, the rearview mirror, I can look back at where I was then. Of course, I can understand more now from this perspective. May we begin to heal the wounds of our heart, of our own self-loathing come to discover that those stories that I've told myself that I've believed in are limited. So the healing within ourself is one aspect. And the other next aspect is all the times that I've hurt another. The reconciliation to those that I've hurt. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, known or unknown. There's times where I've caused pain, I've hurt another. This is a very important part of our practice to anyone that I've caused pain to, that I've hurt their feelings, insulted, knowingly or unknowingly, reconciling to those that I've hurt. The third practice that I think is like a perfection to these three is the reconciliation to those that have hurt me. This is a very difficult practice. But perhaps we begin with this understanding that so long as I continue to harbor resentment and grudges, ill will towards another, I will continue to suffer. I will continue to have pain. 
So out of this love of ourselves and our own well-being, can we begin to dissolve or to neutralize the resentments, the grudges, the ill will that we have upon others? And perhaps there's some understanding that begins to grow just as I've heard another and it's come from my own unawareness, my own fears, my not seeing clearly into things and it's caused pain to another or to protect myself. So too, perhaps others that have hurt me out of their unawareness. And it's always very humble to know that just as we have difficult people in our lives, on our lists, we may be residing on another's list as a difficult one. Very humble. May we discover the gateways into our hearts and you know, there's a context that I um, very much appreciate that uh, Norman Fisher, who's a Zen priest, and he wrote a translation uh, from the Bible of the Book of Psalms. This helps me with forgiving, letting go. And in the Bible, in traditional language, there's often descriptors of people as being bad, wicked, unrighteous, evil. And what he did was he changed all of those words and he used one word. They were heedless. She means they were unaware. They were unaware. They were unmindful. So there's times in our lives that we have also been unmindful and maybe have caused pain to another, or others have caused pain to us. I'm not saying that it justifies all these actions. I know some of us here may have experienced extreme traumas and violation from others, but at least it begins to bring us understanding because of this unawareness. It gives rise to such, if I have a belief that I'm deficient, I'm going to show you how big I am and hurt you. Deep down, there's this belief of my own deficiency. I mean, there's many different beliefs that we have that cause such suffering and pain. It's a beautiful teaching from Miller Williams, and he says, Have compassion for everyone you meet even if they don't want it. And what seems to be conceit or bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. How could we have ever known What's going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone where no eyes have seen and no ears have heard. So opening up to this compassion. We just don't know at times. We just don't know. So let's just sit for a few moments. Actually, we already are sitting. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind.
we'll, we'll just um, reflect for a few moments, meditate. So just taking a moment and feeling into the heart, this precious heart, and of course that one day we know it will be otherwise. And feeling into our hearts with a sense of reconciliation to the times that we've been hard on ourselves, opening into our heart with compassion, with great kindness. Yes, there's perhaps good reasons for these different stories of self-loathing and deficiency and adequacy, but perhaps we no longer have to carry that load of them we begin to open into our hearts with compassion and with wisdom, understanding the limited definitions that have enslaved us. Opening into wisdom and compassion. And feeling into our hearts as well to the times that, due to our own woundedness and fears and pain, we've hurt another, or to protect ourselves. And so any time that I've hurt another in any way, may there be reconciliation for the times I've caused pain to another. And feeling into the heart, those times that others have hurt you. May be very difficult to forgive, but we can at least begin by neutralizing the resentments, the grudges that harden our hearts, opening into our own hearts with compassion, neutralizing the harboring of resentments and grudges. And may those that have caused pain to us, may they see more clearly into the gateways into their hearts, growing with awareness, just as I have hurt others coming out of my own unawareness. Others have hurt me coming out of their unawareness. May all beings discover the gateways into the heart. So these are some practices, perhaps, that um, if you feel 
some resonance with and want to practice with them from time to time, you're welcome to. And to me, the sense of being able to reconcile to the times I've been hard on myself, to the times I've hurt others, to the times that others have hurt me is a powerful purification. And may it grow with deep wisdom, all coming out of this unawareness, fear, pain. And so I'm going to end with um, a reading from Naomi Shiabnai called Gate 4A, and I think it's very pertinent for our times. Particularly in these days, and I know in the practice discussions, I've talked with so many of you that are, I know there's lots going on with this election, and, you know, we're not done with the retreat, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, what's going to happen, and I know, th yeah, these are, it's here, it's in the field, it's in the room, it's in our lives. So I want to offer this as a, as a possibility. So it's called Gate 4A. By Naomi Shebnai, she says, wandering around the Albuquer Albuquerque Airport Terminal, after learning my flight had been de detained for four hours, I heard an announcement. Is there anyone in the vicinity of 4A? Please come if you understand any Arabic. That was my gate, and I actually understand some Arabic. So I went immediately. Well, one pauses these days, and there I saw an older woman in a full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like the one my grandma wore. She was crumpled on the floor and she was wailing and the flight service person was saying, help, help, help. Talk to her as I came closer. What's your problem? We told her the flight was going to be late and she did this. I stopped and I put my arm around the woman and I spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words that she knew However poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely, and she needed to be in El Paso for a major medical treatment the next day. I told her, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call him. So we called her son, and I spoke with him in English, and I told him I'd stay with his mother until we got on the plane, and I, that I'd ride right next to her because I was riding on Southwest Airlines. <laughs> you can still do that these days. She talked to him, and then we called her other sons just for fun. And then we called my dad, and he and her spoke for a while in fluent Arabic, and they found out, of course, that they had 10 shared friends. And then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some of my Palestinian poet friends and let them chat with her too? And this all took a couple hours. And by that time, she was laughing a lot. And she was telling about her life and patting my knee and answering questions. And she had pulled uh, a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar 
crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts out of her bag, and she was offering them to all the women around the gate. And to my amazement, not a single woman declined. It was like a sacred sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mum from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There was no better cookie. And then the airline broke out the free beverages from huge coolers and two little girls from our flight ran around serving us all apple juice and they were covered with powdered sugar too. <laughs> and I noticed my new best friend. By now we were holding hands and she had a potted plant poking out of her bag some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old country traveling tradition, always carrying a plant, always staying rooted to somewhere. I looked around the gate of all the late and the weary passengers and thought, this is the world I want to live in, a shared world. Not a single person in this gate. Once the crying of confusion stopped and no one seemed to be apprehensive anymore about any other person, they took the cookies. I wanted to hug all the other women too. This can still happen. Not everything is lost. Not everything is lost. This is the world that I want to live in. I want to live in the shared world. Not Everything is lost. May we never underestimate the powers of love. Just as the light dispels the darkness, the love dispels all fear all pain. May we never underestimate these powers of the heart. How we be wise in how we live our lives in with the world. This is the world I want to live in, a shared world. So we'll just sit for another minute and just feeling into this heart, this tender heart.
all beings dwell with peace. have each other. Nanda once said to the Buddha, looking out at the Sangha, said, gosh, you know, like, the Sangha's like half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, uh-uh, it's the whole of the holy life. We got each other. And may we pass it on. Thank you. <laughs>